It's taking all the skills that have been learnt over generations, over many centuries, and taking them into the future. It's taking tradition into the future. And it's taking the best into the future and discarding the worst. Because a process is old, it doesn't mean to say it should survive. Because a process is good is why it should survive. You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me every Tuesday and Friday when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice on making in the UK. Let's crack on with the show. Welcome to episode 77 of the Make It British podcast. Have you been on your summer holiday yet? I have just got back from mine and I am feeling very relaxed, but I'm also wishing I'd spent at least a little bit of time while I was away sorting through my email inbox because you know what it's like. You get back from your holiday and you've got thousands of emails to go go through. But Until I get onto that, I thought I would record the intro for this podcast because I've got something a little bit different and a bit special for you today. Just before I went away on my holiday, I had the very great pleasure of being given a tour around the Fermin and Son factory in Birmingham. Now, if you're not familiar with the name Fermin and Son, you are going to be certainly going to be familiar with their products if you have ever seen Trooping of the Colour at Horse Guards Parade or if you have seen the changing of the guard outside of Buckingham Palace because pretty much everything you see worn at those events have been made by Furman and Sons or one of the other companies in their group because they design and manufacture state ceremonial and parade uniform. And the factory that I went to see, which is known as Furman House in Birmingham, manufactures all of the metal buttons, ceremonial armour and helmets for, well, for Her Majesty the Queen. In fact, they have had a royal warrant at Furman Sun continuously through every monarch's reign since George II. And not only that, they are the oldest manufacturer in the UK. Well, at least the oldest privately owned one because the Royal Mint apparently is the oldest, but we're not going to count them because they're not privately owned. So Furman and Son are the oldest manufacturer in the UK, which is all pretty exciting. They were founded in London in 1655. They've been in Birmingham for several centuries now because they moved there because it's an area known for metalwork. And in fact, in their factory that I went to see, which is the one you're going to hear the tour from today, they design and manufacture metal buttons, ceremonial armour, helmets, all sorts of metalwork. It's quite a hive of activity, as you will hear on this tour. And Tony Kelly, who showed me round to this very prestigious metalworks, is extremely knowledgeable and passionate, not only about all of the company's craftsmanship, but also about its history. So I hope you enjoy this tour as much as I did. Bear in mind that it is recorded in a live working factory. So there's a bit of, well, actually there's quite a bit of background noise banging around, but then I hope that really conveys the sort of hive of activity that Fermin House is. So I have several images which I took on my visit, which will accompany what you hear here. So if you really want to bring this whole tour to life, take a look at the show notes at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash 077 to see more of my factory tour around Furman and Son in Birmingham. And I am planning to do a few more of these factory tours and put them on the podcast. So do let me know what you think about it or if there's a particular factory that you would like me to go and visit. You can send me a DM on Instagram or you can email me at kate at makeitbritish.co.uk. Right, let's go for our tour around Furman House. Tony, do you want to tell me a little bit, go back to the beginning about um, Furman and Sons and how the company came about? Mm. 
Feminist Sons began in 1655, right in the middle of that little 10-year period when this was a republic, when Oliver Cromwell and the Parliament were running the country. So it's about five years before the restoration of the crown, when Charles II is restored to his majesty, and about six years after Charles I is executed. There we are, established at a place called Three Kings Court, which is off Lombard Street in the City of London, right in the heart of what is the City of London. This makes Furman and Sons the oldest manufacturing company in the United Kingdom, privately owned, and it means that we are older than the Bank of England, we're older than the Stock Exchange, we're older than Lloyds of London, and we're older than the Hudson Bay Trading Company. Very, very few manufacturers uh, are still uh, around from the 17th century. And That's incredible. So you are the oldest manufacturer in the UK? We are now the oldest manufacturer uh, that's privately owned. The oldest maker, you could probably say, is the Royal Mint. We won't count them. But we won't count them. That's a government department, really. <laughs> but as a manufacturing company, yes, we, we are now probably the oldest. Part of a group of companies which involves everything that goes on to a uniform, including medals, and the uniforms themselves. Uh, we are three companies within the group. Furman & Son is the oldest at 1655. We have a very old company, which is um, about 100 years old now, Cashkit and Partners, who are probably one of the world's finest state and ceremonial uniform manufacturers, making all the guardsmen's uniforms in London, the Household Cavalry, the Royal Horse Artillery, the Yeoman Warders at the Tower. They also made Prince William's uniform for his wedding. Yeah, of course they did, <laughs> which is also made with Hainsworth cloth from Yorkshire, isn't it? From Yorkshire, yes, that cloth... Um, it goes back to the time of Waterloo um, and the recipe has hardly changed. Very hard wearing and we use quite a lot of it in, um, in our uniforms, both parade uniforms and also the lovely evening wear uniforms for officers' mess dress. That's the kind of thing you'll see um, an officer wearing in the mess at a regimental dinner. So Furman and Sons started in London in 1655. At what point did it move up to Birmingham? The main engineering factory moved to Birmingham in 1882. Um, Birmingham is famous around the world as the workshop of the world for manufacturing in metal. And many of our accoutrement products made in metal, particularly those plated with gold and silver. In Birmingham, they developed commercial electroplating, the ability to put gold and silver onto base metal economically and efficiently. And that was one of the main draws. Also, the craft skills in Birmingham. If you give a, a Brummie a piece of metal, he'll turn it into a Spitfire, a motor car, a piece of regalia, uh, or a piece of jewellery. It's something peculiar in the West Midlands. They're very, very good at working with metal in large pieces um, for, for great pieces of engineering, down to tiny pieces in jewellery. At what point did the business go into making metals? Um, down through the decades and the centuries, many other old companies have been absorbed by Fermin, one being J.R. Gaunt and Son, a very old Birmingham company going back to the 1740s. And they were specialists in the manufacture of, of military metalwork. But one of their specialities was the manufacture of deep struck medals. Now, these are the, the commemorative medals that are presented for usually academic achievement, great awards, things like the Thomas Telford Medal or the Stevenson Medal or the Faraday Medal, where we have the uh, specialist skills that will produce a deep-struck piece, much, much more detail than you would get in a, in a coin in your pocket. Now, going alongside that is then the ability to produce medals in full size and miniature for the military. And with that will go various ribbons. And you, you know when you've seen a, a, a soldier, sailor or airman wearing their medals with all the different ribbons, that takes some design where you need to combine different colours and different weaves to produce a nice design. And uh, just at the back of the cabinet there, Furman were very proud to be engaged to produce the 2012 Olympic ribbons for both the Paralympics and for the main Olympic Games. That's amazing. So you didn't do the medal part of that? No. Who did the medal part? Yes, by tradition, um, national mints quite often are engaged to produce the medal for that particular country's hosting of the Games. And, uh, and that's, that's still the case today. 
but we were fortunate to um, use our, uh, uh, our royal warrant as ribbon supplier to the royal household, gave us an opportunity to put forward a proposal, and we won the competition uh, and the contract to do the medal ribbon. For the so tell me more about the royal warrant. At what point did Furman and Sons pick up the royal warrant? We probably hold the longest continuously issued royal warrant now. Our first royal warrant was given to the company by King George II as the King's button maker. And we have held a royal warrant of appointment for every monarch since. So that would be George II, George III, George IV, William IV, Queen Victoria, Edward VII, George V, Edward VIII, George VI, and our present sovereign, Queen Elizabeth II. Probably unique for the same type of product and service. It's not issued for the life of the monarch. It's only issued for a period of five years. So every five years, you've got to re-justify and re-win your warrant. So from King George II through to the present day um, is a long time to, to hold the same warrant. And we are very proud to be the king's and the queen's insignia, button and accessories manufacturer and suppliers of ribbon. So when Prince Charles um, comes to the throne, you'll have to impress him with your um, medals and buttons and get a royal warrant from him, won't you? How does that work? Um, by tradition, you uh, usually contact the royal household with your range of services. If the royal household has a requirement, they will invite you to look at something. You have to compete commercially. The royal household is very competitive in its, it seeks best value for money. Um, it looks for good service. It's looking for the ability to maintain continuity. You can imagine many of the items uh, of ceremonial have been in use the same styles for some considerable period. They also look for innovation. They also look for new, new ways of doing things. Is the way you make something sustainable? Are you producing it ethically? So there are many modern traits uh, in the Royal Warrant which keep uh, manufacturing at the absolute peak. Uh, it's a very good uh, um, uh, way of, 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 of innovating in industry, but it's also a very good way of maintaining certain craft skills. The Royal Household has a, a very, very wide range of requirements from gilders, French polishers, through to modern electronics. And um, it, it, it's an absolute joy to be a member of probably one of the most exclusive clubs in the world, and that's the Royal Warrant Holders Association. <laughs> so you touched on sustainability there. Um, you told me earlier about how your company is sort of zero waste. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, we, um, as a very old company, you have some very old processes. Uh, we don't keep a process because it's old. We keep a process because we haven't found a better one. Now, that can lead you with a lot of challenges. We use lots and lots of materials in our industry, both textiles and metal, and therefore we use a lot of finishing processes, some of which involve chemicals. We set ourselves a target. How can we be sustainable as a 360-plus-year-old company? How can we look at ways of, of, of going forward to our client and saying, we're doing this in the best possible way in your interests, because it's helping you with your sustainability policies. Many governments now issue that as part of their contracting. So we looked at all the processes. We looked at various companies within industry that could work with us in partnership to say, the target is zero landfill. Nothing from our manufacturing process to go into landfill. So whether it be liquids or solids, whether it be plastics or metals or textiles, how can we make sure that everything can be recycled? So we look at that when we design something new. When we're replacing an old product with a new product, how can we make sure that the new product is actually more sustainable than the old one? So that's a general policy and it runs throughout our management team. Whenever we're looking at something new, what impact will it have? How can we make it sustainable? How can we advise our client so that the client can be involved in the sustainability? Because carbon footprint, consumption of materials, world resources, to be fair, is everyone's responsibility. So if the oldest manufacturer in the UK can be zero landfill, then no one else has got an excuse. Well, everyone should try. 
Um, we know that certain processes are not easy to do, but you can always do more. Um, we don't sit on our laurels. We always look at more and more and more ways of making it better and better and simpler and more sustainable with less impact. When you're a very old company, um, if you were a sales manager and went to your managing director and said, right, boss, we've got a product that's going to be on the production line for 10 years, he'd snap your arm off saying, oh, excellent, we'll recover all our product development, it'll run for 10 years, we'll be able to wind it down at the end of the contract. But when you've got products that have been in service for more than 200 years and the customer still wants more of the same, you have a different type of product. There's a classic one here. This is the armour worn by the Honourable Artillery Company, Company of Pikemen and Musketeers in the City of London. Now, they hold a royal warrant from the Crown as the official bodyguard of the Lord Mayor of the City of London. Now, they were around at the same time that Furman and Sons was established. They were um, part of the parliamentary army during Cromwell's um, period in the 1650s. Now, 350 years later, the unit comes and says, can we have some more, please? So we are going through a programme at the moment, and it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely programme. It's a very, very venerable and a lovely unit to deal with of introducing um, a more sustainable, um, future-proofed set of armour in a ceremonial style of the 17th century. This is what would have been worn at the Battle of Edge Hill. What, that exact style there? That exact style. We've got a cuirass front, we have shoulder scales, we have tassets, which would have protected the, hip, the hips and the groin, and that would have been worn by a pikeman. Now, the pikemen were there to protect the musketeers, to enable them time to reload and refire, and they formed very much a phalanx of protection to the artillery train, to the musketeers and wore that style of uniform. It looks like it weighs a tonne. How much does it weigh? Um, you, you, you're looking at several kilos, but remember the weight is spread across the body. It's not, it's not on one part of the body. So the body can actually carry quite a lot of weight. If you imagine a typical soldier going into battle today might be carrying 40, 50, 60 kilos in full kit, um, and then they will shed certain amounts of equipment. Now, the similar thing would have happened at the time of Cromwell, where they'd have worn a certain amount of body armour to do certain types of activity. And when they were in full battle, when the two armies engaged, you needed maximum protection. So how, much, how long does something like that take to make and how many people are involved in producing it? Well, the programme is to make approximately 40 sets for the, um, for the company. Um, we have two full-time armourers here, supported by the rest of the factory, making component parts, of course. Um, it would take to make something like that, you're probably looking at a month to produce all the parts, from sheet steel through to the finished, formed, polished, shaped and riveted item, fully lined, ready for the, the pikeman to wear. And you do every single process of that on site here all in Birmingham? The, all the processes are done here. Um, all the parts and components are made here. Um, master craftsmen who do the, the forming work, the sheet metal work, but then they're supported by other people within the company. So you'll have stampers and solderers and brazers and leather sewers, polishers, enamelers and so on, all doing their part to provide an overall finished garment or finished piece of equipment. So can I go downstairs and see where all the magic happens? Let's have a look. <laughs> wow, look at some of these old, the sheet. How, how old's the most, um, the oldest piece of equipment that you've got here? The oldest piece of equipment we have goes back to before the Great Fire of London, and it's still in use, and we'll show you that in a few moments. But many of, many of the machines that you see are on this particular floor. These are Victorian. These are Victorian fly presses. They are still in use today. At one time, you would, at one time you'd see them all over the West Midlands, making buttons and buckles and bullets and teaspoons. It's a beautiful piece of Victorian engineering where you can do a tool change within minutes. Now, if you're doing long production runs, you'd have automated machinery, obviously, but it takes time to set an automated machine and you need a lot of volume to go through. But when you're making our type of items, where you might be making 12 buttons for a field marshal, 
no use having automated machines. You've got to have the ability to do quick tool chains, changes and efficiently. So the fly press in different sizes, now that gives you different pressures and different weights, depending on the thickness of material you're piercing, the tool setter can change it very, very quickly. Which is what this chap's doing over there. That's what he's doing over there. He's adjusting um, a, a small press to close some buttons. That's bringing the front of the button and the back of the button with the ring and closing them tight together to make a, a tunic button. And good to see young people working here too. Oh, thank you. That's always nice. It's um, uh, The temptation is to have a, a, a retain your craftsman forever and ever and ever. But we all have to retire at some stage. <laughs> And it's important that you pass on those skills um, to the next generation so that they pick up the baton for the next coronation. <laughs> We're in the stamp shop. This is where we have heavy presses ranging from about five tons of pressure up to about 200 tons of pressure where we actually stamp the design onto the surface of the metal. Now it might be a tiny little chin strap button or it could be a large helmet plate for a ceremonial household covery helmet. Um, the die which has the design is placed into the press then a piece of metal, usually an alloy of copper, um, sometimes precious gold and silver, is placed over the die, down comes the hammerhead weight, and it pushes the metal into the face of the die, transferring the design onto the surface of the metal. Brilliant. Now this large press here is actually producing the blank for a policeman's helmet plate. So we have a piece of um, uh, copper alloy, an alloy of copper and zinc, which we would know as brass, is placed over the die. You see the hammerhead comes down. And then the first impression goes onto the surface. Let's see which force we're making. Ministry of Defence Police. Now you can see a lot of the design is built up, but we will have to do two, three or more blows to gradually build up all the detail. You can't do it all in one go, otherwise you would smash your tools and you would split the metal. So it has to be done in stages. You build up the detail in stages. Oh, so what's is, this lady doing here? This lady now is um, one of my colleagues is stamping uh, a metal cap badge for the Royal Navy, for an officer in the Royal Navy. So it's already had one blow, it's now having another blow to bring up more of the detail in the crown and the wreath. This badge was introduced originally as a wartime only badge in the Second World War to replace the beautiful gold wire hand embroidered badges which were too difficult to make. After the war, most wartime only insignia reverted back to its original, but the Royal Navy requested that this particular badge should be retained. And it's still issued today to a young naval cadet for wearing a beret. And occasionally you'll see a photograph of Prince William when he was doing his um, training at Britannia Royal Naval College, wearing his navy blue beret with one of these badges. So that piece of kit here, um, actually this protecting thing at the front of it, has to make sure no one sort of crushes their fingers. How old is this piece of machinery? Um, the heavy presses range from, this particular one is about 15 years old. But we have some which go back about 60 years, uh, the earlier press you saw making the police helmet plates. But this is a more modern process. I'm now going to show you its predecessor. Can't go too close because this is a process that can only be done by a setter operator. This is a skilled person who actually sets the machine as well as operates it. Um, these particular drop stamps go back to the 1840s and they're still in use and they still produce the finest buttons. It's a gravity blow. So rather than punching the metal into the die, down comes a hammer weight and strikes with a gravity blow. So Sir Isaac Newton is actually making these buttons. Oh, okay, let's go and have a look then. Oh, let's try and... <laughs> hello, John. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what this does then, Tony. What, what we've got, John has some button shells, which are the fronts, the dome shape on the front of a military button, which has been made on an automated press. It then goes into 
the drop stamp, it's placed over a force, we release the brake, which in this case is the man's foot, down comes the hammerhead, about 12, 14 inch distance, and gravity blow strikes the face of the button shell, transfers the design onto the shell. In this particular case, I think we're probably making, yes, Coldstream Guards buttons. Well, I have, I mean, I'm absolutely amazed by the fact that this guy is basically using his right foot, which is looped round a big piece of rope. I'm trying to describe how this works. What, what we've got is um, it's called a drop hammer. Originally, they would have been driven by a water wheel, then after that by a steam engine, now by an electric motor. And that's there to aid or to help to raise the weight in between the two guide rails. Now, there were many different sizes of drop hammer. The same equipment would have been used to make a scythe or a spade or an edge tool, an axe head. Here, we're using a smaller one to strike uh, designs onto the face of buttons. A skilled operator can do about between five and 7,000 strokes in a normal shift. He's operating with his foot, which leaves both his hands free to control the movement of the shell and the struck piece. So if he's always using his right foot, does he end up with one muscly right leg compared to the other one? Does he swap feet halfway through the day? No, he does rotate, otherwise you'd end up looking like Popeye. Um, so it's quite skilled, takes a little bit of time to get used to this. When I did my training here and did this, um, you make sure that you don't get your fingers caught because it is quite skilled here. Right, what have we got here, Tony? What we have here now is the insignia treasury of the United Kingdom and for large parts of the world. So there are rack upon rack upon rack, row upon row, box upon box of stamping dies and tools. Um, if we'd kept all the dies and tools we've made uh, since 1655, we'd have needed Wembley Stadium to store them. So these are the working dies and tools of products which are still in use. Every so often we have to have a little bit of a trawl through, so when we come up against a die for the Sheffield Gaslight and Coke Company, probably not going to be needed anymore. Um, but we do have some historic dies that have survived by accident sometimes, sometimes by design. I'd like to show you one in particular. This is the stamping die which made the buttons worn by Lord Nelson at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. Now it wasn't specifically for Lord Nelson, this was a relatively new design introduced for all flag officers, that was officers of admiral rank, which included Lord Nelson. And his buttons were made by Fermin, as were some of his uniforms, as we mentioned earlier, and this die still survives. And very occasionally, the National Maritime Museum at Greenwich will ask us to do a, a strike. And so it's nice not to say it's a reproduction, it's just more of the same. Well, that's the original one, that's incredible. And I see that you're that they're in a cabinet here which gets locked because this is your well, it's treasury, intellectual really. property, isn't it? It is indeed. Um, it's a tremendous resource. It's a fantastic toolkit. When I came here 30 years ago and saw the depth of design, if you can imagine millions of hours that designers and craftsmen have put into creating these various designs and images for many different organizations uh, across the world. It means now that rather than reinventing wheels, we can delve into this from time to time and take out some beautiful design and add it to some modern work. So it is a tremendous resource, probably, probably unique in the United Kingdom and probably fairly unique in the world today. Yeah, so how many metal button manufacturers are there left in the UK? A handful of our size, we're the largest. Yeah. Um, there are two or three that still do some blazer buttons, some um, uniform buttons, but not, not to the extent that Fermin does. We're probably now the um, the leading button badge and insignia manufacturer in the United Kingdom. Or in the world. We like to think so. Real <laughs> A few weeks ago, we had a visit to Fermin House at his request by the current United States ambassador, um, Mr. Johnston. He was aware of the connection between the United States and Fermin and Son. 
quite by chance, some of the button dies that made buttons worn by both sides at the Battle of Gettysburg survive at Fermin. Quite by chance. At the time, they would just have been another button order for another export company or contract. And we've had many factory moves since the 1860s and that period in US history. We manufactured a special set of buttons from those original dies, and they were given to um, President Clinton during his visit to Birmingham for the G8 conference. He couldn't believe that there was a company in the United Kingdom still making the same type of product from that period in his nation's history. And there was an aide attached to him from the United Kingdom who said, Oh, yes, Mr. President, and this is the company that made many of the buttons worn by the Continental Army under George Washington a hundred years before that. We also showed the ambassador when he visited a set of badges and buttons which were made by the United Kingdom, by Furman and Son, for the United States forces for D-Day. And during the Second World War, and for many years after the Second World War, Furman and Son were privileged to make insignia for the United States Armed Forces in Europe. So this was just before the recent commemoration of D-Day. Yeah. And it made a tangible connection of a physical piece of uniform worn by men on Omaha Beach and on Juno Beach and all the other uh, engagements that were involved at D-Day. So that shows the long, long period of British industry supplying uh, uniform equipment to the armed forces of the world. Amazing. Once the piece has been stamped, the design has been brought up onto the surface of the metal, we've now got to start removing the surplus yeah. metal from around the edges of the design and from the internal parts of the design. That we call clipping and piercing. And all of that saved metal is recycled. When we sit down with a client to design a new piece, we look at the most cost-effective way to reduce the amount of virgin new material we need to use. So if a client will work with us, we keep that down to the absolute minimum. Then all of the metals are recycled oh, and yeah. reused. Yes, um, it would be terribly wasteful to just keep consuming copper and zinc and aluminium and so on without recovering as much as you possibly can. At the same time, in the manufacture of the products, we make sure that the products are fully recyclable. So at the end of the life cycle of the item, we can then recycle the, the broken or damaged badge. So all of the badges that we make, certainly for the British Armed Forces and all of our overseas customers, are green badges. Although they're made from metal, they're fully recyclable. We have a very, very long-standing tradition here at the Queen's Button Maker, where we invite you to make a button for the Queen. Now, it will be probably one of the buttons for the armed forces that will then go into service, but you have made it on behalf of the Sovereign. Fantastic, so make it British button. Make it British button. And what could be more British than making a button for the Queen? In Birmingham, fantastic. Right, what have I got to do? What right. you have to do now is pick up the button shell, look at the design on the front, yeah. make sure the crown is at the top, and then place it into the stamping die with the crown at the top, making sure the button oh. shell sits in the recess in which it was stamped. Got it. In the right hand, you take the button back, which has got the little shank on the back that will be used for sewing. Place it in the back of the button shell horizontally. Like that. Oh. Carefully horizontally. Oh, yeah. And then that's it. Line that up. And take a good swing of the press, which will close it over. Is that enough? That could have been a bit harder, I think. Give it another. Give it. That's better. Don't need to go to the gym when you're doing this. That's better. Take that out of the die. Now check to make sure it's mechanically sound first. Yep, yep. Doesn't revolve. Now place the button into a new slot with the crown at 12 o'clock, and let's see if it's at 12. Yes, well done. So that's that's a button you've made for the Queen. That's going to be for the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. And the one at the top you can keep, and that will bring you lots of luck. Brilliant. So, can I just ask a question there? So, um, this chap here, this young chap who's been making these today, how many of these buttons will he do in one day? A skilled operator will be do between five and 7,000 in a normal working shift. So we're looking at between 30 and 50,000 a week. Now, to give you a better statistic, 
at the height of the First World War, more than 200 million, 200 million metal buttons were made in Birmingham every year. It was an enormous industry. Huge volumes of buttons going all over the world, going throughout the empire. Uh, if you imagine the British Indian Army on the peninsula was 10 times larger than the British regular army. So we're talking of very big volumes. The Royal Navy was much larger than it is today. The fledgling Royal Air Force beginning, all the different police, constabulary, coast guard and so on. So the manufacture of uniform buttons was, was a very big industry in Birmingham. Today, in a busy year, the industry probably produces about 2 million buttons. So we're producing smaller volumes, but much higher quality. Yeah. So I've basically, um, there won't be 7,000 made today because I've taken up the production line um, for the last 10 minutes. Well, you've made a button, which is <laughs> one more. Um, uh, no, you've done your contribution. Well done. <laughs> I can't imagine doing 7,000 of those in a day. Um, yes, you'd go bonkers if you did this all day long. So all of our operators do more than one skill. Many of them have got three, four, five skills. So the, the, the workforce moves around the factory doing different processes. It means that yeah. they have much more variety, much more enjoyment, much more job satisfaction, and much more job security. It means that we have a workforce that is more flexible for the production manager yeah. to follow the peaks and troughs of manufacture, to try and reduce log jams, mm. um, to try and keep flow going. Machine. So we're going upstairs now, are we? The machine just to our left is our automatic button back machine. This was introduced into Furman in 1920, just after the First World War, and it was built by one of our own toolmakers at that time. It's two machines which have been bolted together to make a reciprocating press. You can see on one side there's a coil of metal, and on the other there's a spool of wire. This is like a giant sewing machine that makes the button back. It cuts out the round shape, it puts the holes in to allow us to drain chemical away, and it rivets the shank, the ring, into the back of the button, and quite often it will put the maker's name on as well. Now, this was introduced in 1920. When it came in, 10,000 ladies, 10,000 ladies in Birmingham lost their outwork job through that one machine. It does what they used to do by hand. The rings in the back of metal buttons up until about 1920 were put in one at a time, riveted over one at a time with a little treadle press in the backyard with the tin bath and the baby crying in the pram. And we would deliver the button fronts and backs and collect the finished button backs. One machine, two of them were made. This one is still in perfect order. So next year, 2020, it celebrates its centenary. Now I want you to imagine how many military and uniform buttons around the world have been made on that one machine. So we think that automation is a modern day thing, but actually this is 100 years ago. Automa automation has been going on since the pharaohs mm. and building the pyramids. Somebody finds, finds a way of doing something more efficiently, more cost effectively and quicker. So the process I've done with putting the shank on the back of the button and putting it together, would you never automate that? We have tried. Um, trying to get a machine that will identify the design the right way round and line it up at the same time every time isn't easy. When you go into different industries that are using electronics or uh, infrared or various um, spots of light, uh, it isn't easy to get the Heinz um, ketchup bottle the right way round at the right time every time. Um, even more difficult when we're looking at this type of component. Also, the production runs today are not as long as you would imagine. As we've already mentioned, in, a, in, a, in, a, in four or five hours, you can do 5,000 buttons. Now, an average button order might only be 1,000 buttons, so it isn't always, automation isn't always the solution. It's worth it, no. As we move through the factory now, we're starting to add a little more value to the products. On this particular floor, we're putting the fittings on the back using two processes, fusion welding and brazing and soldering. Now, welding is one of the strongest joints that you can put in to two pieces of metal to bring them together. And we introduced this some time ago, uh, which enabled us to use mass-produced components uh, we get repetition, we get the same type of fitting, same position every time. Right. So what we're doing is taking a component, 
bringing it together with the badge, passing an electric current through it, and the two are actually fusing to become one. Ah. The traditional method um, was to braise, to use soldering, which is very skilled and uh, you have to be careful not to overcook. So the two methods um, lend themselves to two different types of, uh, of, of need. When you're doing high volume, flat back, we'll always use a fusion welded process if we can. For another reason, it discolors the badge a little bit less than soldering, which means we will use less chemical when we're cleaning it. Wow. So it's environmentally the right way to go. Uh, but certain products, unfortunately, still have to be soldered because of the shapes uh, or the configuration. Let's have a closer look. <laughs> right, so what's this lady uh, my doing colleague, here? My colleague Joe here now is actually putting a fitting on the back of a shoulder title. So she's got um, uh, an aluminium shoulder title for one of the military units. She's bringing in uh, a fusion pin, which will then have a clutch fastener to retain it. Placing the pin into the jig, bring down the safety guard, press the treadle, electric current passes through, and it fusion welds the pin to the back of the badge. Now, in engineering, shipbuilders will tell you that if you get a good weld, the material around the weld will often fail before the weld fails. Mm. So very strong engineering joint. And it's ideal for repetition components, um, like a shoulder title. Okay. Um, this little area here is silversmithing. We do do a certain amount of uh, precious work here, but we also do a lot of kind of quite precise hand finishing. So sometimes we might only be making three badges. So the whole process will be set up. It isn't worth occupying too many machines once you've stamped the design. So the silversmith, in this particular case it's Frank, will actually saw out and construct the item. Now on his bench at the moment, He's got a, a royal cipher, an E2R cipher oh, with a yeah. crown. Now that's going to go onto a, a very senior officer's uniform shoulder board. So we may only make three or four. Right. So they'll be made literally by hand. So that then changes really from a badge to a piece of insignia. Hello. Okay, Frank. Thank you, Frank. So Tony, you said that when you first started here, you were using some of the machines. Is that how, did you work your way round on all the processes so you knew exactly what you were doing before you got to your management role? Absolutely. Until you know how a business functions, until you know the skills and the processes that you have in your organisation, how do you sell them? You need to know how they work. You need to know what works well, what is difficult, what is inexpensive, what is expensive. So when you're advising your clients of the best way to do something, you bring all those skills and all that knowledge to the table. Um, it also helps you when you're designing and developing. You can avoid dead ends. You can avoid pitfalls. You can bring the product to market that much quicker when you know the difficulties with materials and the opportunities with materials. So you mentioned design there. Who does do all the designing of the products here at Furman? Sometimes it's the customer. Sometimes the customer will have a fully-fledged design capability. In the case of the British state, it's the College of Arms in London. They will come up with beautiful designs going back centuries um, for new pieces of insignia. Sometimes it'll be um, from one of the schools of jewellery in Europe. Here in Birmingham, we have probably the finest in Europe. Part of Birmingham City University is the Birmingham School of Jewellery. They will do designs, um, computer-aided designs, sometimes hand-drawn, sometimes a mixture of both. And it's lovely to see when all the processes are being brought together. Uh, it would be sad if some of the old processes disappeared, but I have a feeling in the jewellery, insignia, metal, accoutrement manufacturing world, I think they'll stay on for a little bit longer. Good, good, good. That's what we, that's what we like to hear. This is, brazing and so this is brazing and soldering. This is where we're bringing pieces of metal together, sometimes the insignia with its fitting, using um, uh, a traditional brazing process. This is a gas air gun with a bright, strong flame using solder flux and paste, the skill of the operator to bring two pieces of metal together so that you have minimum amounts of discoloration uh, and nice, neat finish. This is quite skilled. Sometimes it's a large piece. We can see some ceremonial helmet spikes being done. Sometimes it's a small piece where you're just bringing a tiny little pin or a shank that might form a brooch on the back of a piece of insignia. 
So yeah, I can see how you need a lot of skill because you've got a blue open flame there, haven't you? Um, if you imagine a Bunsen burner, the, the, the hottest point of the flame is just at the tip of the blue point in the flame. So that's the working part. You need to know where the heat is in the flame. Too much heat and you will melt the insignia too little and you won't get a good joint. So it does take practice um, so that you, you end up with finished soldered products and not a tea chest full of scrap. Yeah, don't let me on this bit. I don't want to have a go here. <laughs> so Frank, how, oh, he's doing a tricky bit at the moment. I won't, I won't ask him a question. Well, how long would Frank have taken train to do this? Frank is a, a, a senior craftsman here. Um, after serving his apprenticeship, Frank has, um, has been at, at work now for, for more than 30 years, so he's a very skilled silversmith. Um, he can work on large pieces, small pieces, long runs, short runs, um, everything from dressing a medal, the edges of a medal, to producing a, a ceremonial helmet spike, as you see here. So he's one of your top craftsmen, then? He's one of our senior craftsmen. Um, uh, he works very, very methodically. Um, brings all the skills that he learned as a young man and then develops through his career. Amazing. <laughs> now, Julie is one of our one of our lovely lady operators. She's working on some <laughs> rank markings for a general officer. The design is a crossed sword and baton. So this will be worn by a general in the army. These are going to become gold anodized aluminium um, and will be worn on both shoulders on a uniform. Now, this is aluminium, so this has a, um, uh, a much lower melting point than the brass. So we've got to be a bit more gentle with both the material and the component. So you'll notice that the flame is much smaller, much finer. Yeah. We bring in a little bit. The difficulty here is that the component part is aluminium and the badge is aluminium, and they both have the same melting point. So what we have to rely on is the operator's knowledge that a large piece of metal heats up and cools down at a different rate to a small piece of metal. So some science and some, yeah. physics, some physics and chemistry coming in. Well, I say the, the smell of this workshop we're in here does remind me of the uh, chemistry lab at school. At school. <laughs> well, this is really, this is taking all those things that you'd have seen at school, transferring it into an industrial environment. So it is still important. The industry still requires engineers. It still requires people who want to come and make things. So although vast volumes of manufacture are no longer in the United Kingdom, those manufacturers that are left still need to replenish their, their workforce. So there are, still, there are still opportunities for young people who want to manufacture rather than be in service industries. So do you have an apprenticeship program here? We do take on young trainees and apprentices. Our products are so peculiar that um, you don't tend to find technical colleges that teach this no, particular course, process. Yeah. So some of it comes in taught in the, in the, in the, in the schools of jewellery and so on. An awful lot of it has to be on site. So we bring our young trainees in, um, normally for between three and five years, and then we present them with a job that, as long as firming is required and our products are required, they will be required. Mm. Yeah, job for life. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Julie. Now, I want to introduce you to our senior craftsman. John has been with the company now more than 52 years. He came wow. here, did his apprenticeship at Furman & Son, and he's now the master craftsman who makes all the ceremonial state helmets for the household cavalry. Wow, what an incredible job. Lovely to meet you, John. Thank you. John um, produces a helmet very much the way you would see a, a Morgan motor car made. He does it from scratch. So each individual helmet, all the parts, once he receives them from the stamp shop, he will make by hand and construct by hand. So every helmet is hand finished and hand made. And do you do the whole process from start to finish, John? Yeah. Once, once I've got all the parts, then I'll complete the whole thing himself. Wow. So when you watch on the telly with the, some the Queen's birthday parade or something like that, you, it's all your products that you've made? Yeah, yeah. yeah so I've been on the TV as well as BBC. So. Oh, so my podcast is nothing then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think John would agree, though, that he's not able to produce them without the support of his colleagues in the rest of the factory. Yeah, yeah. So the skills of the people in the stamp shop, the press shop, polishing shop and so on, are there to assist him, to enable him to 
bring all that together to produce um, yeah. a beautiful piece. So it's very much um, a team effort yeah. uh, uh, where everybody's skills come together to produce the finished article, whether it's a humble button or whether it's a full state helmet. With the helmets, they're lined, aren't they, with a fabric part. Who, who does that bit? That's done in another small uh, workshop of the factory. We can go there in a few moments, where Sally, our seamstress, will actually take leather, chamois, hide leather, um, of different grades and styles, and she will then form a lining to go inside the helmet. That's what sets the size. Yeah. So the, the shell of the helmet then sits on the piece that sits next to the soldier's skin. Um, that's what provides some padding, some comfort as far as you can with this type of headdress, um, but that's all sewn by hand. Very much traditional saddlery type skills where you're sewing leather in broad open hand stitching. And that looks like goat skin inside, isn't it? There's goat skin, there's calf skin and hide um, and chamois, a mixture of, um, of, of leathers. We bring in some modern. What we have here is the breathable part of the, the liner. Um, you can imagine inside that state headdress on, on an eight, it does get very warm. It's not <laughs> the most comfortable of items to wear. So over the years, we've developed certain processes and certain um, uh, techniques to help make it more comfortable. This is the same breathable fabric that you would see on body armor. So this allows, that's not an alarm. That's just the break for lunchtime. <laughs> so we've got some of them, uh, modern processes. This is breathable, and this helps to wick away some of the perspiration yeah. that develops inside the helmet to make it a bit more comfortable over a long period. And how long have you been? In, have, how long ago did you introduce that part of the helmet? Um, so that's a modern addition. Upgrades started to come in in 2007. These are very old established products, and they don't tend to. Uh, be visited for an upgrade yeah. very often. It's the way we've always worn it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean to say it's not the best way. So we've started to look at see even some of the older pieces of equipment to say, okay, can we make this better? Can we make it um, more cost effectively? Can we make it more comfortable mm. for the end user? Mm. So those type of drives now, it's nice to see. Um, quite often our operators will say, well, if I could do it this way, I think it would be better. So we're beginning to take forward ideas of innovation to our clients rather than necessarily waiting for them to say, can you improve this? Um, I think that's where British industry and British manufacturing really can be at the forefront yeah. of being proactive rather than reactive all the time. Okay, what have we got here? What we have here is probably one of the oldest pieces of military manufacturing equipment in the United Kingdom still in service. Now, if you look very closely, we're looking at a, a, a blacksmith's elm, which is the trunk, and then a series of small specialist anvils. Those scorch marks that are on the side of the blacksmith's elm are the burn marks from the Great Fire of London in 1666. No way. Now, we were established oh, wow. in 1655, um, about 10 years after the business gets going. What do we have? Two thirds of London destroyed by fire. Yeah. Now, like many of the merchants of the day, Thomas Furman, who founded the company, went back to see what could be recovered. How are we going to start rebuilding, get the business back on, on the ground? Now, his business, the building collapsed in on itself. When the uh, rubble was taken away, we still had this, this series of anvils and this blacksmith's trunk. It has survived. Now, this is about the eighth, possibly ninth factory that that has been in. Mm. Think, that piece of equipment made items for the first Duke of Marlborough at the Battle of Blenheim, Churchill's ancestor. It made items for Nelson at Trafalgar in 1805. It made items for Wellington at Waterloo in 1815. It made items for the Charge of the Light Brigade. It made items for the Battle of the Somme, El Alamein, right the way up to Helmand Province and probably this morning. And how much is it used now? Still used. You see the different anvils. Um, the operators will come up from the factory when they want to bend a piece of metal in a particular way, and they'll sit down, set the anvil, and tap a little piece of metal. So it survived because it's still used. Yeah. We had um, a visit uh, a few years ago now by uh, a, a former chief of the defense staff who said to me, Tony, that shouldn't be here. It should be in the National Army Museum in London. And then he said, no. It shouldn't, should it? Mm. It should be here because it's still used. Mm. And he then paid one of the finest compliments, I think, to our ceremonial clothing and accoutrement industry. He said, I've just realized 
Without the skill of the craftsmen and women of the United Kingdom, the armed forces of the Crown cannot function. And I thought that was a nice compliment. Yeah. So we all share that. Um, that's true. Without the skill, the product doesn't get made. Yeah. And without the skill of British manufacturers, the British products for which we've become world-renowned wouldn't be made. Um, Martin, who's our other um, master armourer, John making mainly helmets. Martin produces the cuirasses. That's the correct name for the breastplate and backplate for the household cavalry. It's a piece of armour. It's a word that goes back to the time of Agincourt. Now, making the cuirass front and back for the household cavalry, the techniques are very similar to what the armourer would have used at Cressy or Agincourt. We start off with a sheet of metal. That sheet of metal is then changed from being flat to being curved in that beautiful shape that we would now recognise as the breastplate yeah. and backplate. That's all done by hand and eye. Now, most of us Gosh. are right or left-handed. Mm. There are very few of us that are ambidextrous. Now, a craftsman or woman, when they're making a piece that is balanced in shape, have to learn how to cancel that natural right or left-handedness. If you've ever tried to take the bottom off a door yeah. with a wood plane, you tend to overwork one side yeah. and underwork the other. It's just natural. So a skilled craftsperson has to be able to cancel that to make a beautiful shape. Now you can see here in front of us, we've got a, a cuirass front and a cuirass back at different stages of manufacture. It's almost ready now to be polished. So from deep drawn mild steel, fully formed, rolled, beaten, shaped, it will then be metal polished. It'll then be copper plated. It'll then be polished again. And it'll then be heavily nickel plated and it'll then be polished again with a swan's down polishing mop that gives you that mirror finish that we see on the Household Cavalry Regiment as they escort the Sovereign down the Mall or to and from Parliament with that sparkle and that glint in the sunshine in London. So how many people have you got that work at Furman & Sons that are skilled enough to make these? Um, we have two people who can actually take that from beginning to end, but uh, as I mentioned with the other products, they are supported by the other members of the, of the team in the factory. So making the rivets, making the trimmings, making the edges, that will all be done by their colleagues. But the master craftsman or the craftsman, I was asked once by an apprentice, Tony, what's the difference between a craftsman and a master craftsman? A craftsman is a practitioner, a master craftsman is a teacher. So the master craftsman shares that skill, passes it on to the next craftsman. The craftsman goes away and practices it. So bringing all that together, we have two, and we have a, enough work that keeps two um, master craftsmen fully occupied. The, the, um, the accoutrement order book is, is, is quite full at the moment, so um, we're not short of work. That's good to hear, though. I love to hear when UK manufacturers are busy. We're going to have a look now at probably the last of the processes, and this was the process that brought Fermin from London to Birmingham, ah. and it's electroplating. Uh, when you electroplate gold onto the surface of base metal, you use cyanide. So please do not touch any wet surface. Uh, we won't expose you to anything. And as we go in, it smells like a swimming bath. It's not harmful. It's just the natural steams that come off the, the, the swill tanks. So it'll, you think you've entered a swimming pool, but you're actually entering an electroplating plant. Right, let's go. We have two lines in front of us. The one nearest to us is for anodizing aluminium. And the one on the far side is for electroplating. Let me briefly touch on one. Anodizing aluminium is changing the surface structure of the aluminium to enable you to apply a colouring dye and at the same time electrically and chemically polishing the metal. So it's a relatively simple process. You can add all the colours of the rainbow in the colouring dye. But the colours that we use most here are gold for the military, silver for the military, a little bit of yellow gold for the Royal Navy and a certain amount of black. Where, where we need it. So it was a process that was introduced uh, for insignia in the late 1950s towards the end of national service in 1960 um, so that soldiers didn't have to polish buttons and badges made of brass. Anodized aluminium picked up the nickname from the service men and women and they called it Stay Bright because it didn't need to be polished. Um, 
today it's perhaps a little bit old-fashioned. It's still popular in certain areas where they've got a, a relatively simple style. It's very popular with the Royal Air Force. They have uh, uh, the newest of the forces. They don't have too much of the old traditional uh, heraldry to take with them. So it was introduced for them, and they still like it. It still looks nice on their uniform. The newer regiments since the 1990s have opted to revert back to electroplated metal. The other process, electroplating, is taking metal out of solution and electrically depositing it onto a surface of another piece of metal. Right. That's the process that was developed in Birmingham, which revolutionised um, certain industries. You may, although you're far too young, have heard of a process called EPNS for cutlery, electroplated nickel silver. That was virtually replaced overnight by stainless steel. But at one time, all nice forks and spoons were made of steel but electroplated with nickel. And it became known as EPNS, electroplated nickel silver. You have to do an awful lot of preparation. Now, if you think of um, vintage motor cars, motorcycles, with lots of chrome, chrome bumper bars, headlamp caps, and so on, the biggest curse for them is rust. Yeah. Now, rust usually occurs on that type of metal, not because of poor plating, but because of poor preparation, poor cleaning of the metal. You cannot have those spots appearing on insignia or on uniform items. So the preparation and cleaning of the metal is absolutely essential. It must be spotless, no kind of contamination at all before you plate it. In the case of anodizing, that's done using acids. So if we look at the tank, oh, it's, that's bubbling, why it says it's bubbling acid, away. sulfuric, my yeah. God. So that's a tank of sulfuric acid. Sulfuric acid with a heater, with um, air passing through it, and with an electric current passing through it. That's going to agitate the surface of the metal and it's going to electrically and chemically clean the metal spotless so that the aluminium changes from a dull grey colour that you saw in the factory to sparkling silver. On top of that, we can then add a coloured dye if we wish. We can either have it as bright silver or we can immerse it in a colouring dye and make it gold or yellow or black. Very simple process. What we have now is the, 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 the item, the badge or the button or the piece of insignia is now jigged up on a jig ready to go through either the anodizing process if it's made of aluminium or through the electroplating process if it's made from copper alloy. Now if you look closely at the jig you can see that the insignia is facing outwards all in the same direction. That's because the important part of a badge is the front. You don't see the back. The back's usually yeah. attached to a cap or to a piece of cloth. So it's important that the front of the badge has the maximum amount of deposit. Now, depending upon the size of the piece, will determine how many we can put onto a jig. So you have to know a little bit about the surface area of the item, um, of how many we're going to put onto the jig. First thing we will do is pass it through the cleaning processes. With aluminium, it was acid. But when it's electroplating, it's the opposite. It's a very strong alkali. In this case, oh. it's caustic soda. Oh. The caustic soda will rip away the oil and the surface contaminant from the front and the back of the badge. We put it through a swill, and then we put it through another tank of caustic soda that's even stronger, so that the metal comes out spotless. Now, when you electroplate gold and silver, they are actually quite dull. Yeah. What gives them the shine is the undercoat. Like when oh, a, really? Yes, oh. and underneath most bright electro gilds is bright nickel. It's the bright nickel which gives the shine, then the gold is put on top of the bright nickel. Oh. That's what gives you the shiny surface of a gold-plated item, the right. undercoat. This is the jigging wire that fastens the piece of insignia to the jig before it passes through electroplating. Now, when it goes through the gold plating, it is taking gold out of the uh, solution the same way that the insignia does. So this is actually gold-plated scrap. Now this will go to be recycled, the gold will be recovered, the nickel undercoat will be recovered, the copper and the zinc from the brass alloy will also be recovered. So the entire item will be recycled. It'll go right round the circuit and become gold and nickel Brilliant. and copper and zinc all over and again. back in the days, you obviously didn't used to do this then. No, um, this type of item would have been regarded as just a, an industrial waste and would go into landfill. 
but the cost of raw materials now, particularly alloys of yeah. copper or gold or silver, is so high that you would not think of depositing this in landfill. Yeah. It can all be recycled. And recovery processes have improved so much now that there is very little metal that cannot be recovered in some way. Right. Industry, these are going to be um, hubcap covers for oh, yeah. Jaguar Damers. Yes, of you you recognise the little Jaguar Damer? Yeah. Well, this will go on to the limousines. These are not the sports cars. Um, so we've got a yellow anodized um, Jaguar symbol, the, the head of the Jaguar. The outer area will then be sprayed black, stoved to make it hard, and then the two little rivets on the back will allow it to be riveted to the hubcap ah. of a Daimler or a Jaguar limousine. Do you drive a Jaguar? Wish. <laughs> In this room is where we will wire up uh, and unwire the items ready for anodizing or electroplating. It's also where we'll check shades and colors. Uh, this, is the, this is the finish that the customer actually sees. All the other processes that go before this are the engineering processes to mechanically produce the item. Now this is the surface finish that the client sees. This is the bit that gives you the, wow, look at that. Yeah. This is what draws the eye into the detail. All those lovely shiny buttons. Shiny buttons that are all ready to be plated with 23 karat gold onto the surface. Um, just in front of you is a small run of buttons for one of the Queen's bodyguards. Now, every late summer, early autumn, Her Majesty and the court will travel to her other capital, to Edinburgh. Now, when we're in England and Wales, the Queen's bodyguard is provided by the yeoman of the guard and the gentleman at arms. But when the Queen travels to Scotland, to the other part of the United Kingdom, um, the bodyguard is provided by a company known as the Royal Company of Archers. And this is a buckle that's made here in Birmingham that will go onto the uniform worn by the Queen's bodyguard in Scotland. Now, if we look very, very closely, we have slightly different crowns. You'll notice that we've got the, the crest of the Scottish coat of arms for oh, the Queen, not, right. not, okay. not, not the coat of arms as it's yeah. used in England and Wales. What an amazing place you've got here. We look at it as... Um, it's, the, it's, it's taking all the skills that have been learnt over generations, over many centuries, and taking them into the future. It's taking tradition into the future. And it's taking the best into the future and discarding the worst. Because a process is old, it doesn't mean to say it should survive. Because a process is good is why it should survive. And because a process can be utilised and turned into a beautiful product that the world wants to buy is why it should survive. Tony, you've been an absolute star. Thank you very much for the tour today. What an amazing, fascinating place you've got here. Thank you. Very, very great pleasure. Thank you for coming to visit the Queen's Button Maker. Thank you for listening to the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday and Friday, plus there's also bonus episodes occasionally. So don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so that you get notified every time a new episode goes live. And if you enjoyed the show, I would really love it if you left me a, just a little review on iTunes. The more reviews this podcast receives, the more people will discover it and the more we can spread the word about making in the UK. Thanks once again for listening to the Make It British podcast. Bye bye.